Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. We've been doing a mini-series that we've entitled Epic Faith from the book of Hebrews, and we're looking at chapter 11. So if you have your Bible or you have your, your phone, you can turn there and you have the Bible app on your phone to Hebrews chapter 11. I would recommend as well the James River app because it's got the notes, it's got the outline, it's got the scriptures that will help you to uh, be able to listen and actually see it there in front of you. Hebrews chapter 11, as we come to a message in time. The Epic Faith of Captain Noah. The Epic Faith of Captain Noah. And what an appropriate thing that we'd be talking about Noah on a weekend where we're having all this rain and it's raining and raining and going to rain some more, but still we don't need an ark like Noah, right? You might feel like you do, but we don't. Let's look at it. Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah... When warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. I never cease to be amazed at the power of the Holy Spirit and the ability of the writers of Scripture with an economy of words and a brevity of space to really summarize a person like Noah, in this case, so adequately in one verse. Because really what we're reading here spans four chapters in the Old Testament, and we're going to be looking at some of that in the book of Genesis as we learn about Noah. Really, when you look at the verse, it divides into four phrases that become for us the four points, and so I'll give them to you. I hope that if you're, if you're listening today, you'll be writing them down, taking notes, you'll review them later, that you go back and let the Lord continue to apply to your heart the things that the Spirit of God is speaking to us as a church. The first thing I want you to notice is the warning his epic faith believed. The warning his epic faith believed. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, by faith. So whatever Noah does, Noah's doing by faith. And it is one of the most spectacular illustrations of faith in all of the Bible. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen. When you and I are walking by faith, we are trafficking in the invisible. Let me say it again. When you and I are walking by faith, we're trafficking in the invisible. The things that cannot be seen with the human physical eye, but by faith become reality. If you're a person who has to have it all laid out before you, before you're going to do it, if you have to know it all, see it all, understand it all, before you'll believe it, it will be impossible for you to walk by faith. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith, not by sight. We're not going off what we can see. We, we understand there's an unseen world, that what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. The New Living Translation translates that verse, for we live by believing and not by seeing. 
Some people have said, well, seeing is believing, and the opposite is true for people of faith. It's believing. As you believe, you and I will see. And if we have to have it all laid out, and if we have to have it all explained, the life of faith becomes very, very difficult. Hebrews 11, verse 7, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen. What hadn't Noah seen? What was he warned about that he had never seen? Well, we find out in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 4, the Lord said to Noah, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Noah had never seen rain. Prior to the flood, it had never rained upon the earth. The earth was fundamentally different in its creation, and the flood changed the earth radically. It was a cataclysm of absolutely epic proportions, and we don't have time to talk about it. But when Noah got off the ark, it would have been as if he had stepped onto another planet. Prior to the flood, there were not storms, there were not tornadoes, there were not the weather disasters that we had. Prior to the flood, there was no such thing as, as floods. But especially Noah had not seen rain. God said, I will send rain on the earth. We know he hadn't seen rain because Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5 says, For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. So prior to the flood, the entire earth was watered not by rain coming down, but by water coming up from subterranean springs and watering the whole surface of the earth. It's very important then, though we do not in our day, we become so accustomed to rain and, and having grown up on a farm, uh, view rain primarily as a blessing. It can come at the wrong time and not be as great a blessing, but typically we're inclined to see rain as a blessing, but rain originally was a judgment. It was a judgment when it came the first time. And in fact, through the history of mankind, and particularly in the Bible, it's the unpredictability of rain that gives God the right to hold it back or give it according to his will. And at times, he judged nations and peoples and, and areas of the earth by holding back rain. But originally, there was no rain. Water came up from the sur surface of the ground and covered the earth, and the earth had a vapor canopy that held much more water than we have today, and, and many theorized blocked out UV light, as we talked about last time, which is one of the reasons people lived so much longer. So when God told Noah it's going to rain, Noah had never seen rain. He'd only seen water come up from the ground, and Noah had never seen a flood. In verse 17 of Genesis 6, God said, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. And that's exactly what happened. 
in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month. And I, I, I simply want to point out, we, this is true. There's a date for this. This is, this is letting us know this is not a fairy tale. This is not a, an imaginative story. And though other cultures may have similar stories, it all hails back to the truth of this story. On that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. So when the flood starts, it is the springs underneath the ground erupting with water. It is the vapor canopy bursting open, water coming down, water coming up, and the earth is deluged, in the words of Scripture, and completely covered with water water. Now back to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen. I mean, God tells him, listen, I'm going to destroy all of humanity, and I'm going to completely cover the earth with water, and the fountains of the deep are going to burst forth, and the, the floodgates of the heavens are going to open up, and it's going to rain. And Noah had never seen it. Noah had never conceived it. Noah could not imagine it, but Noah believed it. Yeah. Yeah. This, then, is what epic faith is about. Again, if you have to see it, if you have to understand it, if you have to have it explained to you how, when, where, why, all the questions, if every question in your mind has to be answered before you will step out in faith, it will be impossible for you to walk by faith. Epic faith says, God has told me, he has directed me, he has said to me, and I believe it, though I don't have the details, though I don't know how he's going to do it, I don't know when exactly it's going to happen, I believe him and I trust him because he's faithful. Epic faith lives that way. There's someone here today, someone watching online and you're going through a difficult situation, and the word of the Lord to you today is that God sees where you're at, and God will bring you through, and God will rescue you, and God will deliver you, but you're going to have to believe today this word is for you. And as your faith is, may it be, may it be unto you. Well, the warning his epic faith believed. That leads us to the second thing, the work his epic faith achieved. Look at it, Hebrews 11, verse 7. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. In holy fear. It's an interesting, it's a, it, in an awesome reverence of God, in an awesome respect for God. One of the things about faith is, on the one hand, and there's a bit of a paradox, on the one hand, there is the familiarity that we have with the Lord, whereby we know him as father and friend. But on the other hand, when you're walking in epic faith, you also understand the majesty, you understand the awesomeness, you understand the fearsomeness, so that there's this balance between the incredible, sheer awesome 
awesome power and glory of God on the one hand that if you and I are exposed to it would cause us to pass out humanly speaking. Wow. I mean, never make the mistake of becoming too casual in your view of God. Good. There's something about a respect and a reverence for the Lord, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. How, uh, I mean, you're utterly unique is what you're saying to God. You're our Father, yes, but, but you're different. You're, you're unique. You're holy. You're awesome. But you're also our Father. Epic faith lives with that, that seeming paradox in its understanding of God. It's, it's very, very important because it's, it's that paradox. It, it gives you the beautiful combination of understanding he's powerful enough to do anything. He's personal enough to do it for you. Yeah, right. The awesomeness of who he is relates to his power. The relational aspect relates to his personal knowledge and care for you and I. We don't talk a lot about fearing the Lord, but it's such an important part of our walk with God. And in fact, the Bible tells us nine things that the fear of, of the Lord does. And I just mention it because I think sometimes it's not mentioned enough, the necessity of having this reverential awe and respect for the Lord. But when we have it, it leads to incredible blessing in our life. For example, when a person fears the Lord, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you want to know what God thinks, how God thinks, how God works, what he's doing, then begin to reverence, respect him, begin to honor him, and you'll begin to get that insight, that knowledge. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You say, what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is knowing something. Wisdom is the ability to apply it to your situation. Yeah. Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord adds length to life. When you fear the Lord, when you're walking with the Lord, God is going to prompt you. God is going to lead you. And just living by his word will keep you from doing some things that could diminish or decrease the length of your life. Proverbs 16, 6, through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. Very similar, these two. There's some things you just won't do. When you know the Lord, when you fear the Lord, you're going to have knowledge of what he thinks, what he loves, what he doesn't love, what he tells us to avoid. And when you have that, it's going to cause you not to give in to evil. Proverbs goes on and says this, Proverbs 14, 26, those who fear the Lord are secure. It, it, the fear of the Lord, the one version says, is, is a secure fortress, and for his children it will be a refuge. In other words, when you as a parent fear the Lord, when you honor the Lord, when you reverence the Lord, it gives you a security, it gives you a confidence, no matter what you're facing, and for your children, it is a wonderful refuge. It's like a castle wall protecting them. Yeah. Proverbs 22 and verse 4 gives us three things the fear of the Lord does. Humility and the fear of the Lord. So what is humility? I would describe humility as dependence upon God. The more humble you are, the more you're depending on him. And fear of the Lord and dependence on God bring wealth. So how does that work? Well, when you fear the Lord, you honor the Lord, you honor his word, you tithe. And when you tithe, he multiplies back whatever you give. You understand the law of the harvest. 
And, and so as you honor the Lord with your wealth, God honors you with wealth. I'm not saying everybody's going to be a millionaire. I'm just saying you never have to be afraid to give. And God will never owe a person anything. And that when you give to the Lord, God multiplies it back to you. If I weren't a Christian, I would tithe. I'm just telling you, throw, I, I, am, I said it last week, I'll say it again, I, with the psalmist, was young and now I'm old, but I've never seen his ri the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread, that when you and I serve the Lord faithfully with our finances, God honors it. It will also bring you honor. That as you walk with the Lord, there's going to be a wisdom about your life, a knowledge about your life, a presence about your life, a power about your life that others will notice, that others will see the favor and the hand of God on you, and it will bring honor, and then it will bring you life. And what is life? The Hebrew word there is chayim. It is it's, um, the idea of all about life that makes life joyful, that makes life happy. It's, it's life, and life to the fullest would be a way to describe that Hebrew word. When you and I fear the Lord, you see, some people have the idea, and the, the enemy loves to make people think this, that if you really get serious about the Lord, well, then your days of having fun are over. No, no. If you get serious about the Lord, your days of having fun are just starting. You thought you were having fun, but you hadn't had any kind of fun like you're going to have fun when you're serving the Lord. I'm just telling you that, that uh, the blessing of the Lord make us, makes one rich or makes one full, and he adds no trouble to it. So when you're, when you're walking with the Lord, there's tremendous goodness that comes into your life. Psalm 85 and verse 9, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. When you fear God, when you honor God, when you revere God, then you obey God. And when you obey God and he calls us to repent, but our faith in Jesus Christ as our savior, salvation becomes ours. Salvation comes near. Deliverance comes near. Nine things the fear of the Lord does in a person. Noah fears the Lord. Now back to Genesis chapter 6. And as we think about Noah, I want you to just think for a moment the stunning, almost, if you will, shocking response of faith. I would venture to say, and I've tried to think in the Bible, whose faith matched Noah's, and I can't think of anybody, honestly, um, who had the faith that Noah had. Uh, and almost everybody else, their faith might have spanned decades. His spans 120 years. Yeah. Longer, because he lived longer, but for this season. What God is asking him to do is so far beyond the realm of human possibility and thinking and to believe is, is so, it's so far out there that it says so much about his faith. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Remember this phrase because we're going we're gonna to reference the condition of the earth filled with violence. One of the signs that God is going to judge a, a society is when the society has an increase of violence. So I'm just, I'm just telling you, America, there, there's a preserving effect because of the believers in this country, but we are becoming increasingly violent as a society. It's obvious in, in everything from the news to entertainment. And whenever a country or a people 
is experiencing violence like that, it is another sign. It's not the only sign, but it's another sign that judgment is coming. Listen, I don't want to depress anybody, but we all need to, we all need to recognize that God is patient, but God is just. And there is a judgment that's coming on this land, unless this land repents, and on the world as we approach the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. God says, I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark. Literally, make yourself a box. This is not a ocean. This is not the Queen Mary. This is not um, any other vessel you want to think about. It's not a carnival cruise ship. It's a box of cypress wood and make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. So here's Noah. He's 500 years old, maybe 480 years, but 500 years old. Somewhere in there, he's got the word. He's heard that God's going to judge the earth. He's 500. He gets his sons together. God says, I want you to build a boat, an ark, a box, and here, and I'm going to judge the earth, and I'm going to send a flood and rain. Noah doesn't know what either one of those are. And it has to be one of the greatest acts of faith when Noah chops down the first tree. I mean, think of it. In Genesis 6 and verse 15, this is how you're to, you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's a big box. It's a football field at a half long. It's about a half a football field wide. It's a massive, massive structure. I mean, this is not something you're going to go to Bass Pro and order. <laughs> and there are a number of reasons, humanly speaking, why Noah could have said, I don't want to build the ark. I don't want to do it. First of all, it had never rained. It had never flooded. He could say, you know what, God, I, I've never seen that before. I, I can't even comprehend how that could happen. Second, it would have seemed impossible to destroy the entire human race, which by this point probably numbers in the billions of people. Now, and, and let me, let me just uh, help you on, you know, Hollywood portrays certain things. Maybe you saw the Noah movie, and Noah's just like one step above Neanderthal, a caveman. That, uh, people were very sophisticated in that Andalusian world. Andalusian is the period of time between Adam and the flood. God had taught Adam. People lived a long time. Think of how much you've learned in whatever lifespan you have. And now imagine if you have the capacity to live to be 800 or 900. Think of this. In the 1800s, the world population was 1 billion. Today it's 8 billion. And that's with, with a lifespan during the 1800s of about an age of 50. And a, and a very short period of that time where somebody would be fertile enough to reproduce. But if you have people that are living hundreds of years, their childbearing and procreation uh, period of time would be much greater. There would be many, many more people. But Noah could have said, I don't understand how that could happen. Another thing that would have been a challenge is judgment was 120 years away when God first started saying this. I mean, imagine 120 years and, and you go by 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, nothing's happened. 
And then you've no doubt have scoffers telling him, hey, it, it hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. And Noah is preaching this message and no one listens. No one's changed. Nothing's happening. He could have gotten tired of the ridicule. He could have wondered about, how am I going to get the animals in the ark? And God said, well, I'll send the animals. And he's like, well, how does that work? I mean, I, I can't imagine animals just volitionally coming in and walking into the ark. He could have questioned the design of the boat. It doesn't have a rudder, doesn't have a sail, doesn't have any of the mechanisms norm, a normal boat would have. Noah, furthermore, as far as we know, knows nothing about sailing. But what Noah does, with all of that being said, Noah says, God, you said it, and I believe it, and I'm going to stake my life on it, and I'm going to build an ark. That's the proof of faith. Epic faith is always active. It always embraces activity and action. The way you really know if you believe something is by what you do. Say all day long you believe something, but until you stake your life on it. Say all day long you believe Jesus is the Savior who died for people's sins, but until you give your heart to Jesus, you've not believed it. I mean, it's very much like James chapter 2 and verse 17. Faith without works is dead. Because a faith that has not resulted in activity has never touched the heart. Well, there's a third thing I want you to notice. The wickedness his epic faith perceived. Look at it. Verse 7. By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, and holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world. And the question is, what, what, what do you mean? By his faith, he condemned the world. What does that mean? Well, for starters, it's an incredibly wicked world. You remember that. And we remember that there were evil angels who'd rebelled against God who came down to earth, cohabited, we talked about this at length last week, with women and produced a quasi-human demonized offspring, terrorizing the earth and the inhabitants of the earth. It, it really, Scripture does not say what that was like, but it must have been awful in every way that you can imagine. As well, you have the line of wicked men through Cain that has proliferated and now has become increasingly wicked more and more and more, which is the way things go. In fact, a principle that I'll say at times to parents is, what you do in moderation, your children will do in excess. You have to be very, very careful about the standard, about the way you live your life, because what you do a little bit of, they'll do a lot of. So people got increasingly wicked. They'd become 11 times more boastful, 11 times more murderous, 11 times more adulterous, proud. And in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. His imagination, it's not only what he does, but it's what he thinks about. All he thinks about is evil, and he delights in it, and they're enjoying it. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, 
and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Twice it says that. It broke God's heart to see people trapped in that kind of warped, sinful, abusive, violent, demonic situation. You want to know what God thinks of the sinfulness in the world? It grieves him. It breaks his heart. And then in contrast to that, there's Noah. Look at it in verse 8. But Noah found favor with the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. Think of this. The only blameless person living on the earth at the time. And he walked with God. What this is saying is you have in the preceding verses the whole earth summed up in those verses. And then you have Noah. And Noah's different. Noah's unique. When you're a person of epic faith, you're different. You're not like everybody else. You don't think like they think. You don't talk like they talk. You don't do what they do. You don't value what they value. When to be a person of epic faith and you have to settle it in your heart means you're different. Noah wasn't like everybody else. He was surrounded by everybody else. His kids went to school with everybody else. He lived in a neighborhood with everyone else, but he wasn't like everybody else. He found favor with God. He was righteous. He was blameless. He walked with God. In other words, his personal testimony matched his public testimony. He wasn't just what you saw on Sunday. He was what he was seven days a week, 365 days a year. He was different. This is the thing that I think helps believers when they can settle in their heart that to walk with God automatically makes you different. I, I say that, and I think right away of First Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation. Who's this? He's talking to believers. He's talking, if you're a Christian, to you. You're chosen. God chose you as a part of the company of his redeemed, as his family to, to exhibit his glory and to experience his glory and to rule and reign with him through all eternity. God's got big plans for you. You're a royal priesthood. It's not just pastors. Every believer a priest. This is a part of the Protestant Reformation. Everybody walking with God. Everybody reading the word. Everybody telling others about Jesus. A holy nation means you're set apart. You're not like every, you're utterly unique. You're different. And in case you missed that idea there, a peculiar people. Why? That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's something about our difference and our uniqueness that gives opportunity for God to show his glory and the transformation that he alone can make in a life. Which is to say, when believers 
are so caught up in being like the world that the world can't tell a difference between them and believers. Something is lost relative to the glory of God. Something is lost relative to the transformation that Christ brings into a life. He's called us to embrace the reality that walking by faith makes you different. It makes you peculiar. You could define the word this way. Peculiar. Adjective. Strange, odd, or unusual. That's you. We're a bunch of oddballs. We're very unusual. We're not like everybody else. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not advocating that we create a bunch of weirdos. God wants us to be disciples, not dipsticks. But, but, he wants us to understand we're different. Parents, one of, the, one of the greatest things you'll ever teach your children is you're different. You're not like everybody else. One of the worst things you can do for your kids is to try to do everything you can to make them like everybody else so they'll be liked by everybody else. We tell our kids all the time, they'd say, you know, it just seems like we, you know, so-and-so does this. How come we don't do that? Because we're different. We don't, we just don't do that. Well, I don't like being different. Well, get used to it. It's that it, we're different. It's how we roll. <laughs> and helping them to begin to process that. And that's hard because there's peer pressure. There's, there's all kinds of forces working on them. And, and obviously we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And that requires a wisdom. But I'm just simply asking that parents uh, understand the value of teaching your children the uniqueness of being a follower of Christ and that as you and I navigate this world as adults that we would understand we're different when you're walking by faith you're hearing what the world can't hear you're seeing what the world can't see you know what the world doesn't know and when you live according to that you will be different and that's good it's good. It's the basis. Once you, once you try to mitigate the difference, and I'm all for being a winsome Christian. Hey, let's not, let's not unnecessarily create some, some weird vibe. The teaching of Jesus. I mean, Peter says that uh, we want to be ready to give an answer, that, that there's a place for an attractive Christianity. I agree with that, but I also understand that when you walk by faith, you're going to be different. Noah was different. And you can go right down through everybody in Scripture. They were different than others in their day. And that difference is what allows for the glory of God and the expression of his power in our life as we prioritize living for him. And when you're different, back to Hebrews 11, what happens is you convict the world. The world doesn't like different. They say they do, but they don't. They like different as long as it's not a Christian different. They like, they like people who appear weird as long as they're not conservative Christians. And then they don't like different. Then it's a bad different. And why is that? 
because they sense the Holy Spirit in you is bringing conviction to them. And they're being convicted of sin, they're being convicted of righteousness, and they're being convicted of the coming judgment. Jesus said that, John 16. He will convict the world of those things, of sin. Because everybody's got a conscience and a moral compass that tells them what's right and wrong. Everybody knows it. And when you're doing what's right, it convicts them of sin, of righteousness, because they know you're right with God and they're not. Of the judgment, because they know there's coming a day of reckoning. They know it. And everything about the Holy Spirit in you and the epic faith by which you live your life makes them uncomfortable. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, the NEB puts it, the New English version puts it, through his faith he put the whole world in the wrong. I mean, part of it is just by the way he lives. The other part of it is by what he says. Because Noah's not only building an ark, and Noah's not only living by this epic faith, but Noah, according to the Bible, was a preacher of righteousness. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And God did not spare the ancient world except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Noah was telling people, judgment is coming. Listen, if we believe there's a God, and we believe he loves us, and we believe he helps us, then we'd want everybody in the world to know it, and we would, wa we would want them to understand what we know. And part of what we know is God loves people, and we also know that in his justice, he will judge sinners for their sinfulness. You know, it's, it's important that you and I are able to communicate both to people. And I'm afraid that in our day, what's happened is we are elevating within the church, evangelical Christianity, a passion for things like social justice, but not as big a passion for the cross of Jesus Christ and a call to the true gospel. And people, people will get much more excited about things that involve social justice than they will things that involve righteousness. He's a, he's a preacher of righteousness. He is preaching. He is talking about the Lord. He's talking about judgment. Not just every time he drives a nail in the boat. Not just every time he chops a tree down. That certainly is its own message of judgment. But Noah is warning them, repent! Judgment is coming! How can we say we love people if we don't tell people there's a judgment that's coming? Listen, I'm not into setting dates, but I can tell you this. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon. And when he comes, he will take the church, the true believers, out of the world, and the world will become a hellish mess as God leaves people to their own devices and pours his judgment out on the earth. It is a cataclysm that you cannot, the worst natural disaster or demonic situation and scenario you can think of will not rival 
in the least the terror and the cataclysm of a seven-year tribulation. Tell people God loves them, yes, I, I, I mean, he does. But also tell them a judgment is coming. That there is a judgment coming on the world. This is what Noah did. It's a part of epic faith. It's not something we, we'd all rather talk about the epic faith that sees miracles. But the miracles and the power of God on our life are a platform for us to call the world to repentance. Finally, I want you to notice the wealth his epic faith received. Noah got an inheritance. Look at it, Hebrews 11. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He became heir. He became, he inherited. If you're an heir of somebody who's wealthy, that means you inherit what they're going to give you. What did he inherit? The righteousness that comes by faith. What does that mean? Right standing with God. What does that mean? It means you become a part of God's family. What does that mean? Jesus is your brother. You're his, you're his brother, his sister. And he says, everything I have is yours. And Noah becomes a, a picture of that. We don't know what he owns when he gets on the boat, but when he gets off the boat, he owns it all. I mean, he owns the whole world at that point. But what you need to understand about the boat, what you need to understand is that the ark is a picture of salvation in the midst of judgment. That just as the ark was made out of wood, the cross was made out of wood. It's very, very interesting. I didn't have time to go into it, but the word pitch, it's translated as pitch. It was like a tar that they covered the inside and the outside of the boat with to seal it so that the, the waters of judgment could not come in. That word is translated everywhere else in the New Testament as atonement. What's atonement? Atonement is what, what happens when somebody would offer a sacrifice. The blood would atone. The blood would satisfy. The blood would cover. It would, it would cover over the sin. Jesus Christ was our atoning sacrifice. I think the New Testament uses the word propitiation. It's the idea of it. He covers our sin. He washes away our sin. When we're covered, when you and I come to Christ, it's as if our, our sin is washed away. It is covered by the blood, by the power of the blood that removes it from us so it's gone, so that, so that God's judgment can't touch us. Why? Because in the Bible it says, like, like the ark, like Noah and his family were safe in the ark. You and I, the Bible says, once we come to Christ, we're in Christ. We're in him. We're surrounded by him. He, he, he's over us, around us, beside us. He, he covers us. And we are saved. Here's the thing. The only way Noah is going to be saved is if he goes in that ark. The only way his sons and their wives and his wife are going to be saved is if they get in the ark. They have a choice. If they say, God, you know what? I don't think your judgment is as bad as you say it is. 
And I don't really think it's going to happen. Like, I don't even know that I believe in it. And they don't get in the ark. They will be washed away with all humanity. The ark is a picture of the cross. Have you come to the ark of Jesus Christ? Have you said, God, I want to flee the coming judgment? Listen, there is a judgment coming, and the writers of Scripture draw this comparison very clearly. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, above all, so Peter is saying this is very, very, this is top priority. You must understand in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, listen, as the last days come, and as you're telling people about the coming judgment, Jesus Christ is going to rapture the church. He's going to gather the church out of the earth. And the earth will undergo a seven-year period of cataclysm and judgment that is unimaginable. The book of Revelation talks about it. At the end of that time, the earth, there's a series of events, but ultimately the earth will be destroyed. It will be uncreated. And what happens is you have scoffers who say, yeah, 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 they've been talking about that. I mean, I remember my grandma used to talk about that, and I remember my parents used to talk about that. But it's never happened. And here's what Peter says. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. That's Noah. So to the person who says, I don't believe, I don't believe Jesus is coming back. I don't believe in this whole idea of judgment. I, that, that doesn't fit with my personal theology or my view of God. Here's what Peter says. You're forgetting something. You're forgetting that back at the very beginning, the world was formed by water and out of water, and by that water was destroyed was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. The first time God destroyed the world with water, the next time he'll destroy it by fire. You say, what's going to happen? Is fireballs come down? I, uh, the Bible says this in Colossians, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He holds it literally together. Someday he's going to let it go. It'll be a massive atomic explosion and the elements. It says being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The heaven and earth will be reserved. They're kept for the day of judgment, destruction of the ungodly. There's coming a day when God's going to judge. I mean, just straight up. And the Bible tells us about that day. Listen, I, I, I just think everybody needs to know this is real. This is, this is not one verse I'm taking. Uh, we can go through the New Testament, and there's a theology of coming judgment. Ultimately, what happens when a person refuses Christ, they will answer to Christ. John says in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, and behold, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
and earth and sky fled from his presence. What does that mean? Uncreated. The universe, in an instant, gone. It says, I saw the dead, small and great, rich and poor, standing before the throne and the one who was seated on it. And the books were opened and the dead were judged according to what they had done as was recorded in the books. So here's the way it works. You can come to Jesus and you can say, Jesus, I need a savior because I am not righteous enough to get into heaven and I need you to cover my sin, to wash my sin away. And in that moment, every sin you've ever committed or will commit, gone. Washed by the blood. Or you can say, I'll take my chances. I don't know that I believe that. I don't know that I'm in on that, that I believe that. And then you'll stand before Jesus, the one to whom all judgment's been entrusted, and the books will be opened, and your rap sheet will be several miles long, and you'll give an account. Jesus said this. So let's, let's not make Jesus like this God of love who has nothing to do with judgment. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, he said, I tell you the truth, on that day, men will give an account for every idle word they've spoken. Every. You got, you got angry? You swore. That's written down. You say, why? That, that's a little petty. Why did, no, because, listen, why do people go to hell? Because they're sinners. And a record of your sin, nobody's going to say, I don't know how I got here. No, it's going to be you said this, you did this, you thought this, you, you acted this way. All of the things there. And then it says this, if anyone's name was not written in the Lamb's book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire. So it's almost like after the, after the whole indictment is read and you have no answer. Then it's like heaven says, the judge says, can, can you make sure they're, they're not a part of the redeemed? And they go and they look in the Lamb's book of life because when you give your heart to Christ, your name's written in the book. And when, there, when anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. doesn't mean you, it's second death in that you are eternally dead to God, but you're alive eternally in hell. It's horrible. It's, it's beyond our imagination to describe. And God doesn't want anybody to be there, so God tells us about it and provides a Savior that if we put our faith in Him, we might be saved from the coming judgment just as Noah was saved. And that's where epic faith starts. Have you given your heart to Jesus? If you're away from Him today, do you realize that? And do you understand the need to recommit your life to Christ? I hope you do. Noah entered the ark and was saved. He believed God and he was saved. The question is, will you do the same? Let's pray.